Hello and welcome to the first ever episode of the Trinity Fianna Fáil podcast. I'm your host, Harry O'Brien, Events Officer for the Trinity Fianna Fáil Society, also known as the Wolfstone Coming. In this episode, I sit down with Jim O'Callaghan TD. Jim has been a TD for Dublin-based South since 2016 and has been one of, if not the most, active members of our doll. Before that, Jim was a nationally renowned lawyer representing the likes of Taoiseach Bertie O'Hearn and billionaire Dennis O'Brien. With them, I touched on many topics, from racism to the economy to technology. And at the end, I took some questions from our live Zoom audience. So sit down, tune in and enjoy. Health and housing, I think, were both identified as the biggest problems, uh, the biggest issues and their biggest uh, voting concerns for voters. At the moment, Irish government debt is, as you know, extremely high. Um, before the COVID crisis happened, it was the third highest in the world per capita, just behind the US and Japan. And that's not much of a problem now with the low interest rates. We've seen our debt grow with, without much uh, consequences. But that, that could very well change in the future as uh, if interest rates were to increase. Like we could be looking at a situation next year where we have hard Brexit or possibly a no-deal Brexit. We could have rising interest rates and we could also have a constitutional crisis in America. I can't, I can't hear you there, Harry. I missed a bit of that. Sorry, um, where, where, where did you miss me? Just, we, we just at the end, the last I heard is you talking about next year we could have a no-deal Brexit. Yeah, next year we could be looking at a no-deal Brexit. You've gone very faint. I think something must have happened there. Um, can you hear me better now? Yeah, much better now. Yeah, we could be looking at a no-deal Brexit. We could be looking at uh, r- rising interest rates. We could also be looking at a crisis in America. We've seen the volatility over there and the potential constitutional crisis, which we might get to later. I'm just wondering, how, how would you, uh, how does Ireland and Fianna Fáil tackle our two biggest problems, which, which are health and housing, if, um, if we have this other thing we have to balance, which is the huge problem of government debt? Well, listen, there are huge uh, crises out there, but listen, there's always been crises. If you look back 100 years ago when this stage was being fought for, you know, they were going to, doing this at the time of the Spanish flu, and yet we were able to establish our independence uh, at that time. So, like, we're never going to have a time really in society when there are no challenges around. There are huge challenges at present, but because there are challenges doesn't mean that we don't try to meet them. We need to try to meet them. Listen, you're correct in terms of talking about the national debt. It is extremely high, but that shouldn't be a reason for us not to invest. Like my own assessment in terms of housing is that we need to borrow to build public housing on public lands. And I think unless the state gets directly involved in that, that we're, we're, we're not going to see the solutions we want to see. I think instead what we will see is that we will have a developer-led progression uh, or solution to the housing crisis, and that won't succeed. Like if you think that of the vast amount of money that we've borrowed for the purpose of dealing with the pandemic, and we're correct to do that, by the way, but let's think if we borrowed, say, 30 billion for the purpose of investing in long-term state accommodation, like you'd probably be able to generate 150,000 units if you borrowed 30 billion over a period of 10 years using a, sorry, an average of 200,000 euro per unit. Because remember, the state owns the land. We have a lot of land in this country that we can build on. And part of the reason for high um, house costs is because the land costs a lot of money. So the state can build houses on land much more cheaply than private developers can because we own the land. But if we did manage over a period of 10 years to build 150,000 units, and we rented the majority of them out. Obviously, some of them could be sold. And we could rent them out at reasonable rates as well, recognising that, for instance, you know, social housing is rented out at, more, at not market rates. But if we did that, we've got to recognise, we get a return from it over the years. Like those units, that accommodation would be there for 100 years at least. And like we would have paid off the 30 billion over a period of 35 years if the interest rates remained what they are now. But then we would have a period of 70 years after that where the state would be receiving the, the rental benefits 
of people who were renting those properties uh, for those remainder years. So I think we need to think long term. What we can't do is just go from recession to housing crisis to recession. We need to invest in accommodation, stakeholder accommodation. And I don't think the fact that we have high levels of debt now should preclude us from doing it because it's a good long-term uh, investment. Like you mentioned about interest rates, you're correct. Interest rates at present are low and that's why you know, we really should be borrowing in order to uh, effect important capital infrastructure projects. Um, and hopefully interest rates will remain low, but of course you're right, we don't know whether that will be the case. So listen, when the budget comes, I'm very hopeful that there will be strong measures in respect of establishing affordable housing availability. And I think Darrell O'Brien, I know he's committed to that. And we also need to recognise that there are short-term gains that we can get on housing. For instance, Dublin City Council and other local authorities will have huge numbers of voids around the city. Like around the constituency I represent, there's a lot of Dublin City Council local authority accommodation and a lot of them aren't occupied. We need to get them back into use and that's something that could happen immediately. In terms of health, you're right, housing and health were the two biggest issues in the general election. And we've spoken to you about housing. In terms of health, I suppose the issue in respect of health has been so dominated by COVID since the election that um, I think it is it has exposed some of the weaknesses in the health system, but it has also exposed some of the strengths. I think we have to recognise we had an immediate crisis in March and April. And hopefully when we look back at this, March, April, May, hopefully when we look back on this, we'll see that that was the height of the crisis, March, April, May 2020. But like we were able to get ourselves up to 352 intensive care beds uh, at that particular time. It involved going to other hospitals, private hospitals as well. But we got 352 intensive care beds available. And at the, I suppose, height of the crisis in around the 15th of April, there were 155 people in intensive care. Like today, you know, there's, there's the second wave and there's approximately 23 people in intensive care. But on the 15th of April, there were 155 people in intensive care and the healthcare system was able to deal with it. Listen, I think in the long term, we need to recognise that we need greater intensive care capacity. People spoke about the fact that we may need to close down the country or to go into further lockdown because our intensive care units may not have the capacity. Like the solution to an issue like that where intensive care units don't have the capacity is to increase intensive care capacity. It's not to go into lockdown. So I'm pleased with the way the, the government and the state has responded to the pandemic. It's a crisis like no other that we've seen in our lives when it comes to the health service. But unfortunately, health is an extremely uh, expensive, uh, absolute uh, re fundamental requirement and it requires a lot of money to be spent on it. But you're right, at some stage, this is all going to have to be paid for and we're going to have to look to see what are our priorities when it comes to budgetary matters. And you know, if we want a better healthcare service, we as a society are going to have to pay for it more. Yeah, that's a good point. And we already uh, have one of the highest per capita spending on health in the EU and in the OECD. It's a uh, very high, much higher than countries like Spain. And you're gone again, Harry. Sorry, maybe it's just me, but you're coming in and out. Uh, can you hear me better now? Yeah, yeah, that's fine. Yeah, I was saying how Ireland has one of the highest uh, per, cap uh, per capita spending on healthcare, one of the yeah. highest in, in the world, yet we do not see the results at all. For, uh, France, for example, Spain, they all have higher per ca uh, lower per capita spending and better results. So clearly the problem isn't spending. Um, how, how do we, how do we, you know, how do we solve this issue? We, we don't have enough ICU beds, we need more. Do we just pump more money into it? Just increase debt more or what? Is it, is, are we run inefficiently? Do we need more primary care centers? Well, you say we don't see res results. Like we, we have had good results in Ireland in terms of healthcare. Like over the past 20 years, when you look at the successes we've had, in coronary care, in cancer, in other fields of medicine. Like we provide a good service here and life expectancy has gone up as a result of that, you know? So we're treating uh, illnesses that were, are very serious. We're having greater success in our treatment of them. Uh, in terms of, I suppose, of results, where, where the negative results are 
in uh, health. It's obviously because of hospital capacity, the hospital crisis that we see every January and every February or December. Like that's an issue that seems to be the, the manifestation to the public of the great failing of the health service. But like you can say that we spend a lot per capita on, on, on healthcare, but like the reality is if we want to get more hospital beds, we're going to have to invest more in it. That's just the reality in respect of it. You mentioned the point about primary care as well. Like maybe it is the case in Ireland that hospitals are just too frequently the first port of call. And maybe what we need is a recognition that yes, you go to primary care centers as opposed to going to hospitals as your first port of call. And I think that's the strategy. And maybe we just need to try to ensure greater implementation of that. Yeah, that's a good point. I'd like to move to something that was a huge point a couple of weeks ago has slightly diminished in popularity, but is no less important, which is discrimination. Discrimination has gone up since the start of lockdown, um, it particularly against Asians. And um, you've been consistently vocal about the need for government action on the issue, and you've worked to tackle it through legal avenues. And there's been some progress, you know, but it's, it's, it's tough. There was a hate speech consultation last winter. You supported a bill in 2016, which just got lost in, you know, government. What is the right way to tackle the problem of racism in Ireland? And more important, and equally important, what is the wrong way to tackle racism in your experience? Okay, well, first of all, I think we have to admit we have racism in Ireland. And, uh, you know, sometimes people like to think, oh, sure, Ireland's a great country, we've been very welcoming, uh, we don't have racism. Listen, they're not mutually incom incompatible. We have, I think, handled the process of immigration into the country very well uh, in the past 25 years. Like when I was growing up, immigration didn't really happen uh, into Ireland. But since 1995, it has happened. And I think it has strengthened the country. I think it has made us more culturally diverse. And I think it has really improved Ireland as a society, just broadening the range of people who are uh, in the country. But as a consequence of that, and this isn't unique to Ireland, wherever there is immigration, regrettably, you get racism. And you would think that as time progresses and as people have the benefit of seeing the horrific consequences of racism, that it would decline. But it's not in decline. If we look at other countries around the world, we can see that racism uh, does exist and is prospering, and it doesn't uh, necessarily not exist in countries which are affluent. There's sometimes an assumption that you won't get racism in affluent countries. That's clearly not the case. The first thing I think we need to do in order to confront racism is I think we need to be very welcoming to the new Irish communities who've come in. And, uh, you know, in Fianna Fáil, I think we have been very welcoming. Uh, in other countries, some political parties tried to gain sort of political traction by building up a strong anti-immigrant sentiment. In fairness to Irish politics, that hasn't happened. And I think that is, you know, relatively unique in countries in Europe that we don't have a strong anti-immigration party. So I think we should commend the political system uh, for that. So having welcomed people in, I think we also need to recognize that, you know, racism can prosper just by uh, exclusion, by not, I suppose, welcoming people into our societies, into our parties, or into our sort of households. So we all need to make an effort to ensure that we attract in people from the new communities. I have tried to do that very much in Fianna Fáil in Dublin Bay South. Uh, I've always gone to uh, meetings of immigrant communities in Dublin Bay South. I think it's important we build really strong links politically between political parties and immigrant groups. And I hope, and I'm sure it is the case with the Wolf Tone coming in Trinity, that you would go out of your way to try to attract in uh, people who are, who are or whose families were immigrants uh, into Ireland. Listen, ultimately it's very hard for the law to um, outlaw and to prevent discrimination. We have lots of laws at present that uh, prohibit discrimination in terms of the Equal Status Act and indeed the Employment Equality Act and the Incitement to Hatred Act, which dates back from 1989. But the benefit and the advantage of having laws in place is that maybe they mightn't be effective on the ground, but they do send out a message 
about what the political system and what the state views as being important. And that's why I think it's very important that we bring in legislation, uh, first of all, to update the Incitement to Hatred Act from 1989, so it is more modern and so it can deal with the contemporary types of racism and methods of expressing racism that exist. And that's something I've worked on and that's something that the government have put out for public consultation in respect of hate crime as well. And I think it's something that we should progress. Listen, we all have a responsibility in respect of it. If we see racism, let's not tolerate it. Uh, like I know, I have a, um, friends who are a mixed race couple. Uh, they go out socializing, the, obviously this was before COVID, but uh, they're exposed to fairly horrific um, racism on a quite a frequent basis. So like we need to recognize this exists and we should just really make it socially unacceptable. Like we've done quite well in Ireland making certain types of behavior socially unacceptable, such as drink driving is completely socially unacceptable. Years ago, it was tolerated, it was laughed at. We need to make sure racism in Ireland is totally unacceptable. And another thing, when you come, well, we can just link it back finally to young people. Like one of the benefits of the internet and social media is that it has globalized politics. And people in Ireland were outraged when they saw what happened to George Floyd in the United States. And people in Ireland are outraged when they see acts of racism perpetrated around the world. So like, I think we need to recognize that there's a global community out there that are uh, outraged by racism and that want to stop it. Like it is so unacceptable that people can be discriminated against or abused or worse, physically assaulted because of their race. And I think we all have a responsibility, irrespective of what the law provides, to ensure that we say it's socially unacceptable. That's a great point. And you're, you're spot on there. No racism should be accepted. And I was certainly enlightened by... I, I did not know racism was such a big a problem as it is now. I only found out through the Black Lives Matter movement and just listening to Joe Duffy. Um, I, I'd like to talk about far-right uh, extremism, which is one of the scariest um, consequences of racism. Uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Martin Kenny. He was a victim of an arson attack in his own home last year. Our far-right extremism in Ireland, you can enlighten me if I'm wrong. I do not believe it's as intense as it is in Hungary or in the US or in Poland. But it is a problem, and I do believe we have a chance now to nip it in the bud. I'd like to focus on solutions. What solutions are there to tackle this far-right extremism, which has been growing kind of under the radar, but has been growing steadily over the past couple of years? Yeah, it's a very good uh, question, Harry. Like, first of all, a lot of your knowledge, and most people on this Zoom call, your awareness of far-right extremism probably comes from the internet and from social media. I just think we all need to be conscious of the fact that social media is not representative. You know, like it, it, it's, in, it's indicative of certain people's views, but like do not believe that society at large is uh, in favor of far-right extremism because there's a lot of it on the internet. But you're right nonetheless, uh, it is uh, a dangerous political ideology and we just have to recognize it for what it is. Like Martin Kenny, very decent TD, his car was burned um, the suspicion, and we don't know, obviously, I don't know if anyone was ever convicted for it, but the suspicion was that this had to do with the fact that there was a direct provision centre being established uh, in the constituency. And Martin, as I would expect of him, had come out uh, in favour of the direct provision centre. But how do you approach it? Like I suppose, first of all, we need to recognise that we need a definition for it as well. And like what you regard as far-right extremism mightn't be what someone else regards as far-right extremism. Like my own view, people are perfectly entitled if they wanted to have to be right-wing, just as people are perfectly entitled to be left-wing. And people can be hard left and hard right. But I think what distinguishes far-right extremism is that built into it is racism. And built into it is an acceptance of discrimination and built into it is deep-seated anti-Semitism, which is something that probably we don't talk enough about. But uh, anti-Semitism, I regret to say, is steadily on the rise uh, throughout Europe and indeed in America. And that is part of the fuel that is really fueling far-right extremism. 
Like, I think we need to recognize that as well. But the solutions to far-right extremism, I believe, are education. Um, like, the, the internet's a very powerful tool and it's a very powerful medium. And there are, you know, not just young people, but there are impressionable people looking at the internet, looking at social media, and obviously issues can be presented in a very propagandist and misleading way. But people are malleable and they'll believe it. And if you say something to people frequently enough about a far right conspiracy involving, or sorry, far left conspiracy involving George Soros, who's trying to change our culture, like we have to be able to expose that for what it is. And uh, the solution, I think, ultimately is in education and counteracting what people are reading uh, online. But of course, the problem with people getting information from online now and from social media is that social media commodifies people into different groups. So if you start reading something about sort of how the Jews are taking over in certain businesses in Europe, the next article you read is going to be equally as anti-Semitic. So I just think we need to be conscious of the fact that we need to get out to people and tell them the truth about uh, what's happening in respect of society, that you know we are not being overrun by certain groups and that the reality behind far-right extremism is that it's based on discrimination, it's built on prejudice and it's built on fear. Thanks. The point that the contribution of fake news to racism um, technology has never been progressing as fast as it is now. It's, and um, the legal system operates at just a completely different pace, which isn't, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. You can touch on that. We've seen with the rise of Facebook and Google and their monopolies, and especially social media, how they've led to increases in, as you mentioned, fake news, but also anxiety, depression, and especially self-harm among young girls. I, 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 I'd like you to speak about how can we fix or update our legal system at an Irish level and also at an EU level to, to get up to date with this new technology and this new world that we're in. It's, it's a constant battle to keep the innovation system up to date with uh, the legal system up to date with innovation. I just like to ask you, what solutions do you believe there are to these growing problems? Okay, the new it's, good, it's, it's a good question. The first thing I think people should liberate themselves from social media and like I'm on Twitter, I'm on Facebook, but to be honest with you, I don't look at, you know, coverage of what people say about me on Facebook or Twitter. Okay. And I'm with colleagues in the doll from all parties who are senior politicians in the country. And I can see them looking at their phone and they're saying, God, I'm getting a terrible time on Twitter. I'm getting a terrible time on Facebook. Like my own view to young people is don't expose yourself to sort of anonymous criticisms about you that are on the internet. Like get away from that. It's, it's, it's very negative energy. It's not going to improve your sense of self-worth. So get away from that. And I'm conscious what you say about uh, the young women, that the figures for self-harm rising. Like I suppose also it's not just negative commentary about yourself that people read on the internet that can affect them. But I suppose, Social media also seeks to present very positive images of other people's lives, to give the impression that they have wonderful lives and everything is perfect. And people reading this are saying to themselves, God, why is my life so inadequate? So I really do mean it when I say people need to liberate themselves from social media. It's a very useful tool politically, social media, to get a message out. If you're trying to communicate with the electorate or your constituents, it's really effective. And as a politician, I find it very useful but it is not a useful way of engaging in um, self-appraisal. It's not a useful way of trying to find out, well, what do people actually think of me? So from your point of view as a young person, be careful when you are reading any negative criticism of yourself on social media. It's not representative of the real world. And really what you need to do is engage with people. Well, I would love to see more. And I know technology has become so advanced now that we're spending so much time with technology itself. We all need to spend more time with people, which is one of the terrible things of COVID is that we're being told to do something which I suppose is conducive to spending more time with social media. But we really, once we pass through this pandemic, we all need to spend more time interacting with individuals. Listen, in terms of the specific question about 
fake news. You know, there's no law prohibiting somebody from uh, telling a lie. It's not a criminal offence to tell a lie. It's not a criminal offence to put out fake news. And, you know, probably it shouldn't be a criminal offence to put out fake news. But what you need is you need discernment. But also, not only is it not a criminal offence, it's not a civil offence to put out fake news. Like, obviously, if somebody puts out something false about me, I don't have any remedy against them unless the news they put out is defamatory. That's the only remedy you have. But in terms of if false news is put out there about a political issue, it can't be rectified. And that's why it's so important that there are strong media organs in this country that we can trust. Like I know people can be critical of RTE and our national newspapers and some of the established uh, websites, but like they are trying to present news in an impartial way. And I know we can all criticize them at times, but like where really you're getting fake news is through the large social media companies, Facebook, Twitter, and they have a responsibility to ensure that they provide some editorial uh, control of what's going out on their platform. But the difference between say Facebook and say the Irish Independent is that the Irish Independent recognized that it is responsible for the information contained on its website and contained in its daily newspaper. Whereas Facebook says, it's not responsible for what's on Facebook. And it says, listen, we're simply a platform. We don't get involved in that. Whereas the Irish Independent, if, if, if somebody writes a letter into the Irish Independent, the editor will look very carefully at it. And he's not gonna publish it if he thinks it's fake news. He's not gonna publish it if he thinks it's defamatory or somebody. So, so you know, they exercise editorial control whereas Facebook doesn't. And really what, I'm not just picking on Facebook, but it's an example of a social media company. The way to resolve this is that um, social media companies need to recognize that they are publishers and that as a publisher that they have responsibility. In terms of how the legal system needs to be changed, I think that's the way it needs to be changed on a European wide basis. That we need to recognize that the social media publishers are publishers in the ordinary course they say they're just a platform, but they have a responsibility for what they publish on that platform. And I think if that responsibility can be recognized in law, well, then I think it'll be much more difficult for them to put out fake news. So would you be, would you be in favor of holding companies as responsible for the information on their sites, even if it is fake news? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but you see, it's hard to stop. But the reason why the, the Irish Independent and the Irish Times don't have fake news isn't because they're afraid of being sued. They're not going to be sued. If the Irish Times runs an article tomorrow saying that, you know, I don't know, but says something that is false, but it's not defamatory. If, if it publishes fake news, you know, there's no legal remedy against that. But the reason it doesn't is because it values uh, its editorial standards and uh, I suppose it is signed up to a press council as well and the, the code of conduct of the press council to publish accurate information. So like in, in terms of social media, I think they should be put on the same platform, the same level as newspapers and other publishers and other broadcasters. And if they're on the same level, well then they'll assume the same responsibilities as the Irish Times and as RT and other publishers. Because what we don't want to do is to curtail freedom of expression of the media. Like they're entitled to be critical. They're entitled to, you know, give politicians like me a very hard time and be really critical of me. There's nothing wrong with that. But the issue in terms of fake news, the only way that's going to stop is if the social media company realizes it's a liability for the content of what it publishes. And because of that, it'll know that its reputation is going to be damaged if it keeps putting out false news in the same way as the newspapers reputation would be damaged if it kept putting out false news. Okay, um, I, I have one more question. And if everyone who'd like to ask Jim a question after this, if they'd send them, they can send them to me privately or you can put them publicly. And I'll, I'll let you ask the question yourself. So I have one more question. It's uh, quite topical. And the US is facing a presidential election. And we have a pre President Trump who has not agreed to accept the results of the election. And, you know, with the delayed voting, we won't know the results on election night. We won't know the results until towards the end of November. Jim, how would you approach a situation where Trump was, 
who had won the vote in person but lost the mail-in vote and therefore did not accept the results of the election. How would you, as a, as a member of parliament, address that? Well, I don't, I, I, very interesting question, but I don't think uh, uh, my views on it will have any consequence one way or the other. But listen, um, I like many people on this Zoom call, I have an enormous interest in American politics. Um, you know, it's hugely interesting. Uh, there are some great American political books out there. I'm sure many of you have read them. But one thing I would say that is a major flaw in the American political system is that it is virtually impossible to amend the American Constitution. And that is why you have the ridiculous situation where uh, judges on the Supreme Court in America have so much power. Like if you just compare Ireland uh, to the United States of America, and like irrespective of your views on abortion, you saw how we dealt with it in Ireland. We had a debate. The people decided in referendum whether the law would be changed. The referendum occurred, the referendum was passed, and the constitution was changed. And you know, it's readily easy to have a referendum in Ireland. All you need is the Oireachtas to vote in favour of a bill to put a referendum to the people. In America, the way that issue is dealt with is by politicians trying to ensure that they can appoint to the Supreme Court judges whom they believe and presume will support their own point of view on abortion when it comes to deciding one case in the future, okay? And like really the way issues like that should be dealt with is the same way as we do with in Ireland. But unfortunately in America, it is so difficult to amend the constitution. I'm probably wrong about this. I think you need something like three quarters or two thirds of, of each house of the, um, of, of the Senate and the House of Representatives. And then you need something like two thirds or three quarters of each state to support it as well. But enormously difficult and it certainly won't be done on any contentious issue. Listen, in terms of uh, President Trump saying he won't accept the election result, um, this, there will be the vote. If there, you're, you're absolutely correct, Harry, in terms of the vote could be uncertain on the night that, of the count because they still have to count the postal ballots. And obviously, because there's a pandemic, there's going to be much more postal ballots. But in a way, this is where the responsibility of media organizations come in. Because all of you who watched the American election will know that, you know, at some stage at three or four in the morning, Irish time, the networks call the election. So if ABC calls the election for whoever it is, Dan, um, Al Gore or something, I remember back in 2000, they got around. But so they will have to be careful, the media organizations. But of course, the media organizations are now polarized as well in America. It's a real example of what goes wrong with polarization. And will Fox News call the election for Donald Trump if it is the case that the ballots which have been counted, excluding the postal ballots, indicate he's winning? I don't think they will. I think what happens is each state is responsible for announcing its own result. And even if you're in a very Republican state, a Republican governor will not announce the final result until such time as all the votes are counted. If it is the case that President Trump says he won't accept the result of the election, listen, there are laws in place in America to deal with that. Um, and there was a very contentious election in the year 2000 between Gore and Bush II, and it went to the Supreme Court. And as a result, Bush won. The American system will deal with this, but I do agree with you that there will be a fractious uh, couple of weeks in the aftermath of the election if it is close. Okay, I'd like to take a question there from Gillian. Gillian, if you'd like to unmute your mic and ask him yourself. Thank you, Harry, and thank you for facilitating the meeting today. And hello, Jim. I haven't met you before, but it's lovely to hear from you here in, in Bandon um, today. So I'm not putting on my microphone. I'm not putting on my camera because I'm making the dinner as, uh, as, we, as we speak. But Jim, my question is, um, and hello to everybody, how do we, as, as a party, Fianna Foil, how do we strengthen Irish people's identity as Europeans. I think that's going to be really important in the next 10 years in Ireland. Um, you know, we, all of our questions here, we've been talking about Ireland, you know, in, as an insular um, sort of with the North and with ourselves and whatever. But I think our relationship with, with Europe really needs to strengthen. And we need better buy-in from our citizens as Europeans and really Irish people becoming involved in European issues and, and buying into European issues. How can we in Fianna Fáil, or is it a priority do you think for us in Fianna Fáil, or should it be a priority for us in Fianna Fáil? And how can we do that? Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Julian. And um, yeah, I think it is, it should be a priority for us. Like in terms of how do we, I suppose, emphasize more 
our identity as Europeans. I think Brexit indirectly is achieving that because I suppose our history has been very much dominated by our relationship with the larger island beside us. And, you know, for many hundreds of years, we were part of the same country. And uh, in recent times, from the early 70s onwards, we've been part of the same European Union. So the links with the United Kingdom, I suppose, have been very close. But now that the UK is going from the European Union, I think necessarily our practical links with uh, Europe will um, increase and improve. Like our business links are going to improve. Our cultural links will improve. Regrettably, a consequence of, of it will be that our links with the United Kingdom will probably uh, disimprove and probably reduce. But I do think we need to recognize that the reason why Ireland has been in part such a successful country uh, in, in, in recent times is because of our membership of the European Union. I suppose it goes back to what Sean Lamas did, but our membership of the European Union, and in particular, our membership of the single market, that they were the, really the transformative events in modern Ireland that uh, turned us into what is a wealthy country. Um, so I think uh, recognition of the European Union and the advantages of the European Union have to keep being emphasized by the Irish political figures. Fortunately now, no political party is anti-Europe. You know, other parties in the past were opposed to treaties in Europe and were opposed to European integration and indeed the European Union. All major parties in Dáil era now are in favour of the European Union, of our membership of it. And in terms of the far right, that's one thing they want to attack is membership of the European Union. So I just think it's the way to strengthen our, our identity as Europeans is for all political parties to emphasise the importance of the European Union and for us to recognise the opportunities that are going to come with Brexit. Okay, thank you for that. We have a couple of questions from William in Cork and you only get one question, William, so um, it is, I'll go on, give you two. Um, he says, what, he's a Fianna Fáiler now, strong Fianna Fáiler. He says, what realistically, what percentage of the popular vote could we have and has Fianna Fáil moved too, uh, too much to the left of centre? What percentage of the popular vote could we have at the next election? Is my own view is that uh, politics in Ireland and around the world has changed. Okay? It's become much more competitive. Like if we were talking to each other 40 years ago, like we have a situation where there was Fianna Fáil, Fine Gael and Labour. Politics is now much more competitive in Ireland. There's a whole vast array of parties. And because of that, it's going to be extremely difficult for any party, including a national party such as Fianna Fáil, to get 40% of the vote, okay? I think it's going to be extremely difficult. I think Fianna Fáil, if we got our policies right uh, and we, um, you know, appealed to people that we could get up to the mid thirties. Uh, that's my own view. Now, listen, that has to recognize that we have to put out policies that are attractive to people. And, um, but people are open-minded about politics much more so than they were years ago. And I think that, um, you know, they're more cosmopolitan. People aren't prejudiced against Fianna Fáil or other parties. But if a party comes out and puts forward a proposal that people like, they'll go for it. And I think there will always be, um, the last election was an unusual election. We had three parties in the 2022, 24.5%. But I think ultimately it'll be possible for a large party in Ireland to get to the mid-30s, but I don't see it ever going higher than that. And with regard to have, have Sina Fall gone too far to the left of centre, we kind of stand for everything there, don't we? Yeah, I don't think we have gone too far to the left of centre. And I don't believe, I, I, that's a criticism of Fianna that we try to please everyone, okay? But we were always traditionally a centre-ground, centre-left national party, okay? And like, historically, I suppose, Fine Gael was seen as the party representing people who are comfortable. Fianna Fáil represented people of no property. Like, I think we were, although we mightn't have realised it at the time, but back in the 30s, 40s, 50s and 60s, we were the Labour Party of Ireland in terms of the equivalent to the British Labour Party. Our policies were build public housing and provide public support for people in need, that they were our policies. Have we gone too far to the left? I don't think so. I think politics has changed. Um, there's a lot of identity issues in politics now, but I think in terms of the core economic policies, I don't think so. I think Fianna Fáil is a centre ground, centre left party, 
And I don't think we've gone too far to the left. But you're right about one thing. We can't be everything. And like there is a political spectrum. And this is where our opportunity lies. There's a political spectrum. And Sinn Féin have gone far off to the left. Uh, and Fine Gael are veering over towards far to the right. The opportunity for Fianna Fáil is to try to prevent the polarization of Irish politics and to say that this country needs a centre ground national party. And that's why we should be voted for. Okay. Thanks, uh, Jim, we have two more questions and then we'll let you go. So first Thanks. is from Ryan Grunwell. Ryan, if you'd like to unmute there and fire away. Uh, hi, uh, thanks for that, uh, Harry, and uh, thank you, Jim, for uh, coming out to speak to us. Uh, as Harry said, my name is Brian. I'm a final year economics and philosophy student here in Trinity, uh, and of course, a member of the uh, of the Common. Uh, firstly, I just want to say I appreciate the explicitly uh, nationalist and centre-left vision uh, of yours for the party. Um, I wanted to ask a slightly more granular question uh, on the topic of future elections um, as a consequence of that vision which is to say um, what sorts of seats and what sorts of voters, you know, hypothetically, if you were leader, would you imagine trying to win back? Specifically, do you think there's much of a future for the party in Dublin or um, is trying to reach out to uh, provincial and rural seats? Uh, would that be a priority? Well, listen, I, first of all, I don't, I don't think I'll be a leader uh, and that's not an issue at present. But in terms of as a, as a, Fianna, Fáil, um, as a Fianna Fáil politician, in terms of the sort of seats and the sort of voters I'd like Fianna Fáil to have. Listen, I would take votes from everywhere. Any politician would say that. Like being realistic, <clears throat> unless there's a Fianna Fáil recovery in Dublin, and unless we're winning more than one seat in Dublin constituencies, well, I think it's going to be very uh, difficult for us to get back to where we all want us to be. So uh, like, I think we need to recognise that we need to win seats back in Dublin and the other urban areas. And that's, you know, I, I think uh, in terms of trying to divide the country up in terms of, you know, rural voters are different from urban voters, that can be very misleading as well. The issues affecting rural people and city dwellers are very much similar in terms of, okay, the accommodation crisis is very acute in Dublin and other cities, but it's also a big issue for people living in the country trying to identify where their children are going to live. Education is a huge issue for people irrespective of where you live. The healthcare service is a huge issue. So I don't think we should try to categorize people into different groups too much. And as a national party, I'd be opposed to doing, to doing that. But I think really that we need to, if we're ever gonna to talk to you about seats, really we need to build ourselves up in Dublin. Like I'm not, you mentioned the thing about the leadership. I'm not getting into any issue about that since we don't have a vacancy, but certainly, that's where we need to have an emphasis, I think, to ensure that we can grow Fianna Fáil again within the city. Thanks. That answer your question, Ryan. It does, it does. Okay, and we have one more from Josh Dunahy. Josh Dunahy is from Tyrone, I think. I am indeed. Uh, hi, Jim. Thanks for doing this. And hi, uh, thank, thanks for taking a lot of our questions because, uh, you know, it's getting to dinner time and, you know, I think some people are about ready for that. And I sent a lot of texts to Harry, but I suppose what I really wanted to get at was, um, you know, with regards to extremism and then the rise of Sinn Féin, they're two sort of separate issues, but they're kind of parallel, I think. And I think a lot of it goes right back to the crash. And I think yourself, you would agree that a lot of the discontent in the country and a lot of the polarization comes from the idea that deep down, a lot of people lived, you know, through nine years of Fine Gael, and Fine Gael saying, this is the center, this is normal. And people thinking, if this is normal, I don't want any of it. And that's why they'll gravitate to PVP or they'll gravitate to somebody who says they'll, you know, change everything. Yeah. Uh, so what I'd want to know is, it seems like Fianna Fáil is really the only party that can kind of drag everybody back to the center and kind of keep the system going, but keep it going in a way that actually helps everybody in society and doesn't neglect different portions. So I'd wonder how would you go about resolving that? Because it seems the key, certainly in a lot of European countries, but even in America, is to give those areas of neglect uh, something to strive towards and something to build towards. They don't feel like they have no choice but to go to like radical extremes. Okay, thanks very much for the uh, question, uh, Josh. 
Like you're right, the crash obviously had a very big impact on Irish politics, and particularly a huge impact on Fianna Fáil. But again, that's not unique. If you look at other countries in Greece, Hasak, which was the big party there, was very badly damaged in Portugal and Spain. The socialist parties there were very badly damaged, although they're back in government now in, in certain parts of them. So it had consequences. And um, like I think part of the reason we didn't do well in the, or as well as we wanted to do or expected to do in the general election in February was because our policies on the crucial issue of housing was seen as being too close to Fine Gael's policy on housing. And like I remember being out canvassing in the constituency, uh, meeting people um, in the inner city who, you know, their son would be staying and staying with them and sleeping on the floor for years. He had no prospect of getting accommodation. That was the turning point for them. And, you know, it's not as though they were great Sinn Féin supporters. They were just sick of the fact that they saw no hope for their son or daughter to get accommodation. They saw no urgency in the whole area of public housing. And because of that, and they saw Fianna Fáil being merged with Fine Gael in that narrative, and maybe that was something that was done very effectively by Sinn Féin, but they saw that happening. And because of that, they went for the option, the other option, which was Sinn Féin. Listen, that's not irreversible. And we have a chance to change that and to let people know that, listen, we will prioritise issues that are going to ensure that we will build public housing. And like you ask about how can we try to attract votes and to ensure there isn't polarisation. The way to do it is we need to appeal to people who traditionally voted Fianna Fáil, people in inner city Dublin communities, a huge number of them voted Fianna Fáil in the past, and we can get them back. It is not as though people are committed to voting for Sinn Féin. They're not. They voted the last time. It doesn't mean they're going to vote the next time. But these people and people who are, uh, whether they live in rat mines or they live in the inner city, these are people who are motivated by ensuring that they just want to see something being done on the housing issue. And if we have uh, radical policies on housing, people will support us for them. Thank you very much, Jim. And we're going to fire one quick question at you and then we're done. Yeah. So, Matthew, be quick. Yeah, just so, just moving to your point about when we're talking about fake news and platforms, can you, uh, how would you solve the issue of people perceiving that the internet is not a kind of a rigged game and closed shop, whereas traditional uh, journalism and the fourth estate in this country is perceived as basically being a, a, like a, not a golden circle, but it's a closed shop basically with the, yeah, I hope that you get what I mean. Yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Like I suppose that's probably a reflection, Matthew, of maybe a difference that I would have and someone your age would have. Because you're right, maybe people your age perceive that sort of, you know, RT, the standard media, are just rigged and they just propagate a certain line. And, you know, in fact, sometimes maybe they are too uh, close to the state and the government. Maybe they do parrot uh, state lines too much without probing investigatively uh, behind the story. But I just think in terms of uh, social media, like there's a real agenda behind very much of the publications on uh, social media and in terms of what they're trying to do, that like they're extremely political in terms of what they're seeking to achieve. I just pe people need to be conscious of it and aware of it. And I think no matter what you're reading or what you're listening to, including listening to me, every person should approach it with a skeptical eye. And, I, and just listen out and say, do I accept that or not accept that? Like whether it's RTE or the newspapers, but especially when it comes to social media, have a sceptical and discerning eye in respect of what you're being told. And don't accept anything really, unless you, you, you can assess it and verify it. So I don't know if that answers your question, Matthew, but that's the way I approach it. All right, yeah. does it, does it? Well, kind of not, no, because it's more the sense that it's 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 the fact that there's no necessity, like, because it's the fact that it's the ease of access that, like, I'll probably later today, but the conflict of interest that exists between journalists and politicians in the state in terms of their, how they interact. If you just look at the journalist on Twitter, on obviously our own PPP meetings, that there's obviously some sort of relationships there that don't aren't always beneficial to... Uh, to the public, like we can talk about Timmy Dooley and others and the, and the voter gate and all that kind of stuff. But like, that's what I'm kind of saying is that it's, 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 there's this perception that there there's gatekeeping to an extent and that they can never have access to it, or there's not even the expectation 
or the possibility that they will get gain access to that kind of platform themselves. Well, I don't know about that. Like, you know, one of the things when I became a TD, I suppose one of the things that surprised me is there are a lot of journalists around Leinster House every day, okay? And I suppose in fairness to them, they have news to report. There isn't much news going around most of the time. Like, obviously, now there's a lot of news uh, going around. Like, I don't think there's a close circle between sort of, you know, the journalists and TDs. Obviously, I'd know uh, journalists, but like they'd be the first to throw me under a bus, <laughs> being frank with you, if they had the opportunity. And I'm, I'm not saying that they would be personally against me, but like if journalists get stories about politicians, irrespective of how well they know the politician, they'll just publish the story. Like the, the, the biggest motivating factor for any journalist is to try and get a story. That's my own assessment of it. So I don't, I don't really see them as being part of some embedded uh, political uh, grouping, you know? But you did say, though, when we were discussing the difference between fake news and you're talking about the platforms such as Facebook and, and, and the likes of that, that the difference was that the fourth estate had some somehow this inbuilt ability to kind of this regulation. But then you just said that they they have a conflict in terms of who they're serving the clicks and, and, and uh, more more revenue for their site. Or are they actually serving a kind of a greater public good by providing uh, like their services of accurate reporting and proper fact checking? Well, it's, I don't know if I completely get the point, but the. Like I think the point to emphasize is when you have a newspaper or a media organization such as RT, you know who's behind it. And you can, you, you can communicate with it and you can try to get a response out of it. But in terms of what's on social media, it is sometimes difficult to find out, well, who's behind this? And like one of the things you'll notice from the past American election is that a lot of sites can be set up ostensibly presenting themselves as being, you know, representing certain groups in America, and they're not. So all I would say to you is have a sceptical eye in respect of everything, but at least when it comes to the um, newspapers and uh, RT, you're aware where it's coming from, whereas that's not the case with uh, other entities and social media. Okay, we're going to have to end it there. Thank you very much, Jim. You've been very generous. I know you're something at six, so you're late already. And there we have it. That's the end of our first episode. If you listened this far, thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. And there's not many of you that listen this far, so I would greatly appreciate it if you found us. We're on Twitter, Facebook, uh, Snapchat. If you just reach out to us on any of those platforms and let us know if there's anything we could improve with this podcast. It would be really, really super appreciated. So again, thank you for listening this far. Hope you enjoyed. Have a good evening.